Good morning. Dr. Mueller is in St. Louis. We'll keep him in our prayers over that fact. Uh, but he asked me to, uh, to step into his shoes today, which, if you've seen them, are enormous. And so uh, we are uh, going to continue our discussion of uh, the I Am messages from uh, John chapter 11. And so if you want to find that on your app or in your Bible, that's great. Uh, Dr. Mueller has spent some time already over the last uh, four weeks talking about various I am messages that are found in the book of John. This is one of the Gospel of John's uh, main points is as he brings out in John chapter 1 and then continues throughout the, uh, the entirety of the text the, the message that Jesus is the Christ. He is God incarnate and the I am messages that uh, Jesus has shared are ones that uh, point people to that fact in their Old Testament understanding, but pointed also to the reality that he's setting before them today. And so Dr. Mueller will be back uh, for a couple of uh, further I am's. I am the gate he will discuss next week, and he'll wrap up right before Easter with I am the good shepherd. But today, from John chapter 11, the I am message, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't know about you, but this time of the year, uh, the last day of March, makes me think of some uh, famous quotes. One of the famous quotes is about death and taxes, right? It is impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. I found that most people give that uh, quote uh, reference to Benjamin Franklin, but actually some people have found that our dear friend Ben probably found it himself uh, from a fellow named Christopher Bullock. But there's one other quote that kind of I find interesting about death and taxes, and that's the one that Will Rogers uh, often put forward, where it doesn't matter. Uh, there's no difference, actually, between death and taxes other than death doesn't get worse every time the legislature meets. And so um, it gives me a reminder. Tax day is now two weeks away, so as, uh, as a prelude to that. But the topic of death is one that is, is difficult. We have a modern perception of death in our culture today through various television and through various kinds of, of aspects that I would say is, is cleansed. It's very uh, devoid of, of some of those emotions. And so I have to admit, uh, I've not seen resurrection or believe, but I know the limbo that people were lost in and, and unfortunately some of the reality of that limbo that is going on uh, with the Malaysian airline flight, that's a message by which people seem to be wanting to kind of gloss over death. I've seen a number of bumper stickers around, uh, around our house as I'm out walking in the morning that says, uh, my mom is my angel, or my aunt is my angel. And what they're referring to, of course, is the death of a loved one, and now that parent is overlooking them is watching over them in some way. And that's the culture that we live in. That's the culture that puts death in front of us. But the reality of death is something quite different, isn't it? It involves suffering and pain. involves loss and grief. And for many people in the world, it involves hopelessness. You know, maybe it's me, but uh, in the last two or three weeks especially, I have seen more and more and more accounts of death that people have had to deal with. Um, colleagues on the faculty and staff whose parents have died, people that have, uh, have experienced that when you watch the news and what's going on. And then, of course, I mentioned the airliner that just vanishes out of sight, it seems. And all of a sudden you realize that while maybe it's a stage of life for some people, death doesn't wait. Death doesn't wait till we're older. It doesn't wait until the right time. It doesn't wait till somebody's lived a full and fulfilling life, death is around us. 
And so what do we look at today in John chapter 11? Well, we look at the story of Jesus as he approaches and as he looks at people that he loves, and he sees in them the need, the need of what death has caused, but he sees also the opportunity to show who he is and what he's done with death. So if we look at our section from John chapter 11, John chapter 10 is where we've heard that uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. And at the very end of John chapter 10, there's a huge conflict between Jesus and the Jews regarding Jesus' announcement to them that he is God's son. It ends once again with people wanting to stone him to death. Multiple times that happens. And here, at the end of John chapter 10, the people are ready to kill him for blasphemy. How dare you tell us that you are God's son? And then it kind of switches as we look at John 11. It kind of changes its tone in terms of a direction. And yet, in many ways, it's still the same message that's going on. The abrupt change here maybe is a continuation for us to show that Jesus is the I am that he was alluding to in John chapter 10 and elsewhere. And in this section, you can see that we're introduced to three people. Two of them, very familiar to people who have studied the scriptures, probably very familiar to the people that John was writing to. Two sisters named Mary and Martha. And we know about Mary and Martha a little bit because of some other stories. But look at the end of that section we will come back to about this illness doesn't lead to death. It is for God's glory. Who are Mary and Martha? Well, they are sisters. We hear about uh, them in Luke 10. And that's the famous place where Mary comes out to, to greet Jesus and Martha stays behind and slaves away in the kitchen. And we hear Jesus speak Those loving yet sad words of Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen what is valuable, what is important, what is lasting. We also know that these two women are seen in the next chapter of John, in John chapter 12, where Mary comes to Jesus in front of a group of people and anoints his feet, thanks him for the gift, and we're assuming now, based on the place it resides, She's thanking him for what's happened in John chapter 11. But the other person we learn about is a fellow named Lazarus. And Lazarus, a familiar name, probably a variation of of an Old Testament name, Eliezer. Lazarus means God has helped. He's Mary and Martha's brother. But to be honest, we only hear about Lazarus here in John 11 and a little verse in John chapter 12. It's the only time Lazarus has ever brought up, ever brought forward to the people of God. And so when we look at those accounts, we notice there's a relationship. There's a relationship between these three people, and there's a relationship between Jesus and these three people. No other times is Lazarus mentioned, yet he is the central figure, but not what he does, but what's done for him and what's done for Mary and Martha. That very last part of that previous section, if you look at verse uh, 4, it says this, When Jesus heard it, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he says to people, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. 
It's an interesting way that that's phrased because in the Old Testament, the glory of God is a picture of a manifested God in front of the people. He comes in physical ways to represent himself at various times. He comes as clouds. He comes as fire. He comes in all kinds of mists that are filling the temple. And yet that picture of God's holiness is one of always perfection. Throughout the Old Testament, when people came face to face with God's glory, God's perfection, it did nothing but scare them, and it made them want to think they were going to die. If you look at Genesis, Adam and Eve walking in the garden after they become aware of their sin, they hide when God presents himself. In Exodus chapter 20 and in 1 Kings 19, places, Exodus 20, or the front of the Mount Sinai, the people are petrified of the form above the top of the mountain of the cloud. All the places in the Old Testament, God has always appeared to people, but when they saw him, glory led to death. And yet here in John 11, Jesus says, Lazarus' death is going to lead to my glory. It's going to show you my glory. Jesus is going to turn this around. He's going to turn it upside down and so that Lazarus will have life because of God's glory, not death. So let's look at John 11, 5 through 10. Let's read those first uh, verses 5 through 7. Let's read those together if we would. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And we'll stop there. Thank you. I know. I put more up there. I appreciate it. We're going to run out of time today. I got a feeling. I'm nearly Wieselmeyer-esque with the number of slides, so (laughs) forgive me. So what do we know? Lazarus is sick. He's called. He says, he finds out his dear friend, his close friends are sick. So what does he do? He waits. He sits there. My reaction is, what? If you had a friend of yours call and say, I'm in need, there's a need, wouldn't you, if they were a really close friend, get up and go as soon as you could? I watched a Bill Cosby special the other night where he determined that's the difference between a wife and a friend. A wife will tell you, why didn't you fix the car when I told you to? A friend will say, I'll come and get you. But that is the difference between, in many ways, what God's timing is and what ours is. Jesus doesn't leave. He doesn't go. He doesn't move directly there immediately because he knows the plan. He knows the message. And yet you have to wonder what the other people were thinking. If you look back at that section, you'll notice John's very clear right before that to tell us Jesus really loved him. I think John needed to make sure he told folks that because if he hadn't said that, the response would be, well, Jesus didn't really care that much about him. But why did he wait? He waited because he loved them. He waited because he wanted to show his glory in this process. God's plans for us in our lives are they're so unclear when we're in the middle of them. When we're in the middle, we don't really have a clear picture of what's going on. And all too often, even looking back, I know it's supposed to be 2020 hindsight, but it isn't always then either. And don't really know why things always happen the way they do. Yet, what are we taught through this? God loves, 
And one of the ways he loves is to wait. So look at John 11, verses 11 through 16. I'm going to ask the faculty and staff to read the entirety of this with me. I'll make that clear this time. The entirety. We read together. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When I read this section when I was preparing, probably not the greatest sanctified thought, But I thought, oh my goodness, the disciples were God's freshmen. He told them something that in their context they should know, and yet he has to go core prof on them and say it in a more plain way. Can you picture Jesus' face? He's fallen asleep. Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples go, oh, great. He's going to get better if he's sleeping. And I just, there's a part of me that just pictures Jesus going, oh. Let me explain it to you so you understand. He's dead. He's dead. But that message is one that says to the disciples, what is the reality of being dead in faith? That message is one that we hear about falling asleep in lots of places. In 1 Corinthians, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul takes from this and recounts it. He always seems to put it forward that when you die in faith, it's no different than falling asleep. Not many people, other than really young folks, are really scared about going to sleep. Matter of fact, as you get a little bit older, kind of look forward to going to sleep once in a while. And yet, what do we know here? It's equated. It's equated for them, and the disciples don't get it. I really think the disciples wanted to. I really believe they absolutely wanted to know what he was saying and how to understand it. Why do we look and go, wow, that's a really simple message they missed? We have the entirety of scriptures. We know how it plays out. We know if I'm in the middle of it, I'm probably very much the same way. That message of, I meant that he died, is one that they need to hear. They need to understand. So John goes on in in verses 17 through 24. Look at a couple places. It says, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. There's a transition. Jesus moves himself closer. Bethany, the city that uh, Lazarus and Mary Martha, very close to Jerusalem, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Takes him a little while, but he's there. Four days later, he's there. And it talks a little bit in this section about people that were coming and all the various uh, aspects. Martha heard that he was coming. She goes to meet him. Martha goes out. Mary remains. An interesting twist on the story we hear in Luke, right? A very different kind of approach from those two sisters. But look at the end there. Where brother will rise again, Jesus says, and Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Four days. Why does John put four days in there? Why do we need to know that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days? Well, it must be because in that ancient world, people would have thought or maybe not known who was dead and who wasn't dead. It ain't that ancient. This is a story from February 28th of 2014. That's a few weeks ago. Where a man in Mississippi 
was declared dead by a coroner, put into a body bag, taken to the morgue, and woke up inside the body bag. Creepy, yes, but reality. Why is John telling us that four days had elapsed in this time frame? What are we 100% sure of? Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. It's not a fluke. It's not something that he overcame. He was a little sick. Four days in a grave, he's a dead man. And yet in that process, we know that's not an ancient thing. That's a thing here. Mary, or Martha's response is one of faith. When she says, yes, I know he'll rise. He'll rise on the last day. There is a, a great statement of faith that Martha is holding forward. She realizes and recognizes a bodily resurrection. This is something that is taught. This is something that had been taught. It was not uncommon amongst people in the Old Testament. It's something that people saw and that people thought this could happen. Were there people that spoke against it? Sure. There were people in the Jewish community that spoke against it. But we know from the book of Job that she's really just acquiring and just restating something Job had put forward long ago. These familiar Easter words to us, right? I know my Redeemer lives. I know that at the last, at the last day he'll stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed... In my flesh, I'll see God. Martha's reflecting the message of resurrection. But a resurrection when? Somewhere down the road. Somewhere in the future. And this is where Jesus says, I don't disagree with you, but you're missing the point. Let's all read together verses 25 through 27, kind of the key points to this message. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus turns that phrase, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Not a future Not just somewhere down the road on the last day, but when? Right now. It's right now. And I believe that he says that to each of us today. He doesn't just say, don't worry about down the road. Yeah, I got that covered on that last day. What he's telling us is, today I'm here. Today I am the resurrection. Today I am the life. So that you know the fullness of the life I've given you here. Job, Martha, many of the others were looking forward to a resurrection. They were looking forward to a Redeemer, and yet who's standing right in front of Martha? The Redeemer, the Resurrector. He himself, God himself, standing right there, ready to show his glory in life as opposed to to causing death. And he's there for each one of us still today. He's there in word. He's there in sacrament. Much like probably Martha and many of the people maybe didn't recognize God had right standing in front, probably we don't always see it when we picture communion, when we picture baptism, when we hear God's word from a a pastor on Sunday morning. We don't always recognize it. We don't always see it. And yet what's the promise? I'm there. I'm here. I am a part of things in the now, not just in the future. And so John goes on, and John tells us a little more of the story. And he says that uh, 
Mary came to an understanding as well that Jesus was there. And so all these people have come from Jerusalem. They're all wailing and mourning. And they all leave with Mary because they see Mary running out. But where's Mary going? She's going to go see Jesus. She finds out Jesus is there. And look at the last verse there in that verse 32. This is actually exactly what Martha said just a few verses before. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a great statement of faith unto itself. And yet it cuts underneath with anguish and with grief. And I have to believe it's still a message we give today. It's still what we say today. Lord, if you'd just been there, this wouldn't have happened to my loved one, to the person I cared about. You could have saved them. You could have kept life in them. And God says, I am the resurrection. It's not a future thing. It's a present thing. I am that life even if you don't see the life that a person has on this earth. It's one of anguish, it's one of of disappointment, but it's trust. She's trusting in him, she's acknowledging him to be the savior, to be the redeemer, but it's hard to see when you're in the middle of grief. It's hard to see how that works. And so John goes on in verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 33 through 37, And it shows an emotional side to Jesus that we see elsewhere, but very deeply connected. So Jesus saw her weeping, and all the Jews who had come outside with her weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how much he loved him, but some said, couldn't he who had opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Deeply moved. Jesus wept. The word deeply moved actually is a message of being angry. Being upset. Now, why was he upset? Well, he could have been upset with all the wailers going on around him. But probably he's upset with what death has caused in this family. What death has done to Mary and Martha and to Lazarus. He's upset. He's deeply moved. Twice it'll talk about, I'm deeply moved in that capacity. If you look at those verses uh, following, it talks about, he was moved again. He came to a tomb. There was a cave, and the stone laid against it. And Jesus says, take away the stone. And Martha says, by this time there's been an odor. He's been dead for four days. Jesus says, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is the picture of the great I am. Just like in the Old Testament, God made himself manifest. Here he is making himself manifest in the lives of these people. As we look at that stone, as we look at what is laying in front, we have to picture another stone a few chapters later in the book of John. We have to picture another grave in a few miles away in Jerusalem, except Lazarus isn't behind that tomb. It's Jesus himself. A stone that's rolled away, Jesus tells him, move the stone, get the stone out of the way. And yet we know that he moves the stone. He, in his resurrection, shows us the fullness of him being the resurrection. He shows us that life. But there's a personal touch, isn't there? He's deeply moved and he weeps. That shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus Jesus weeps, that's not a loud outward wailing, it's a soft 
quiet crying. And what is he showing these people? Well, they recognize it, don't they? See how much he loved them? But what they don't understand is he loves them so much, he's going to give his own life for them. He's going to put himself behind a tomb. He's going to raise himself up out of that grave. That's how much he really loves them. This is just a small picture of that. He's not some robot. He's not some alien. He's just a person who is also God himself. He's crying for his friends. And in that crying, he shows us a personal touch that death is personal to Christ. The death of our loved ones, the death of us, will be a personal thing to our Lord. And so he puts that forward. So at the very end, at the very end here in John eleven forty one through 44, so they take away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and prays for all in front of all the people. I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around. They may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. One of the great quotes is from St. Augustine who says, why did he call him by name? And he says, he called him by name because if he hadn't, the entire cemetery would have rose at the same time. That's exactly the power that God has over death. And yet he wanted it to be Lazarus. And you know what? Just like that, he's called each of us by name. At our baptism, he called you by name. He called you his. And he called you out of death. He said, you're not dead in sin. You're alive. He brings us up in there. You know, Lazarus, I said, is mentioned one more time in the book of John. John chapter 12. Turns out that Lazarus is threatened to death. In, in John 12. The Jews want to kill Lazarus because of what happened in John 11. It's a problem. People are believing in Jesus because Lazarus is walking around. It kind of made me think, how would Lazarus have responded after having gone through death once? Would it have been a big deal? Would he have cared? Would he have put himself in places where he would have openly talked about his Savior, even at the point of being possibly executed again? And you have to think, at some level, that one-time experience would have taken all the mystery out of it for Lazarus. Wouldn't have been a big deal. And yet, that's each of us. Through baptism, we have been raised out of our death in sin into life in Christ. And yet, we haven't experienced that physical death, so that's kind of unnerving. But, like Lazarus, we've already gone through it once. And our Savior called us by name out of that. So what is that power of the resurrection? Well, through our baptism, we are made alive even though we were dead. And through his death and resurrection, he feeds us every day in word and sacrament and gives us his life now and gives it always. The great I am, he who is the good shepherd and the gate and the vine and all of those is also the resurrection and also the life. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, into those whose keeping we entrust ourselves and our loved ones, help us to look to you in our times of sorrow, remembering the great cloud of faithful witnesses with which we are surrounded. Grant that we may one day share in the joys of those who are now at rest in your presence, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. Have a blessed day.